welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Welcome to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm really excited today. This guest has bared with me over a number of weeks. We've got you here. Thank you so much. We've had a few technical issues, haven't we? Um, But you have persevered, which that says an awful lot about your character. So Sean Flores, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what's brought you on my podcast. Yeah, first of all, also good morning. And adversity, we can't change what happens to us, but we can always change how we get back up. That's why I have no judgment when it comes to technical difficulties and so on everybody has a hard life to lead but yeah how would I describe myself I'd say I'm a mental health advocate I speak especially about OCD and I look at how the wider and social political landscape really actually affects mental health I I'm a public speaker I've delivered two TEDx talks and I've now been confirmed for a third TEDx talk at Imperial College London so looking into the psychedelics and um, the potential treatment that they can bring, bringing forth a re- mental health revolution. Yes. I do freelance journalism as well. I was a former model back in the day. But I'll describe myself as a enigma in an extraordinary world. That's quite typically how I like to describe myself. I like that. I read up on you and the thing I hadn't realised until very recently is also model and actor, which is something we're going to have to bring that in today Mm. at some point, aren't we? Because that's intriguing me as well. But are you all right to let us know a little bit about your journey then? So many of my guests have so much to share about their own innate ability to cope their own perspective on coping with adversity and your story is no different. So let's start way back. If you're comfortable, just letting us know a little bit about how did you get into the work that you do? What's your backstory? So yeah, no, I, I, whenever I go onto any podcast or any interview, I don't speak about things I'm not comfortable with. But most importantly, me sharing my story, it, it shares, it, it halves my own burden and sharing my story is somebody else's healing. That's kind of my mentality. So if I start all the way back, I think my first ever encounter with mental health was when my father died when I was six years old on right. Christmas day. And I saw my mum go through six months of really bad depression, severe yeah. depression. She could barely do most things she was a nervous wreck you know panic attacks leaving her keys in the door just struggling to do the very simple things but she had to take care of me as best as she could and growing up I actually never realized how much of a profound effect it had on my life because my mom did as best as she could to plug the holes where my dad father wasn't around so I never really questioned things and as I got older I started to realize how much my dad's death really actually did affect me so I went to grief therapy I've done all these different types of therapy And then around five to six years ago, I started with health anxiety and I was obsessed with this idea that I had chlamydia or I had HIV. And at my worst, I paid £300 for a same day sexual health test just to prove I didn't have anything because anytime I got these sexual health results, I'd be staring at it and just be a bit like, no, no, there's something wrong. There must be something wrong with the test. This is, and that was classic anxiety. But I thought that was normal. I did not realize that was not normal. I thought I was doing my due diligence and just being a responsible human being. But obviously there's limits and thresholds. And every time I kept going back to the clinic, they asked me, why do you keep coming back? And I said, well, I don't really know. I 
I, I couldn't put any answers to what was happening in my mind. And the chlamydia fear um, fell away eventually. HIV feels a new one that kind of migrated away as well. And what happened was when I was working in an addiction clinic and some service users were talking about suicide and how one of the young men there was an alcoholic, he was gay and he wasn't accepted by his Asian family. I remember after that conversation, I could just hear the constant word suicide in my head. And I never returned to the addiction clinic ever after again. I said, I couldn't do it because something triggered me, but I didn't know this was what it meant to be triggered. This was not the language I could understand back then. I just thought, okay, I'm not feeling great. Stay away. And what happened was I had a dream eventually later on down the line, probably about two years after a dream of a white guy in boxes. And I woke up with this just hundred percent belief. I was gay. I, nobody could tell me any different. I believe this was my newfound identity. So what did I do? I woke up, I threw up because I felt so sickened by the idea that I was gay. And that's probably some internalized homophobia coming from the Caribbean community. But also I grew up very Christian. I'm not Christian anymore, but I grew up very conservative Christian. So there's a lot of strong ideas that can come from that. And if to give um, your listeners a placement, when I was 11 years old and in sex education, when they asked me, what do I think of gay people? Apparently my response at 11 years old was, I believe gay people should be put onto an island so they don't spread the disease. And the teacher obviously took me out of the class and apparently I became very heated. I spoke to my mom. My mom asked me, where did I get those views from? Well, I was like, where else would I have got them from? You know, this is the way you guys have taught me when it comes to the Bible. And there was no real argument my mom and I had. There was no real scolding, nothing re- that really said that was uh, intolerant, hate um hate a view that spouses hatred it wasn't anything like that so i kept looking for evidence all around my life when i was around my gay friends i would be like bro how do i know i'm straight how do i know i'm this how do i know i'm that if one of my gay friends touched me i'd sit there and ruminate even if one of my straight friends touched me i'll just ruminate thinking i'm gay if i went to the sauna in the steam room in the gym and i was able to acknowledge a guy was good looking or had a good physique i'd be like gay it was just a constant, incessant rumination cycle over and over and over again. And I just learned to live with it. There was nothing else I could really do about it. And at the time, I was in the modeling industry. When I was in the modeling industry, I was getting a lot of male attention. And yeah. I believed that to get so much male attention meant that these guys somehow knew something about me that I didn't know about myself. So that was the new kind of narrative I had played in my head. These were all stories I told myself. And then after that, the, f- the the fear was still there, but it didn't really bother me as much per se. I was with one of my female friends, a girl that I was seeing, and there was just a word rape popped into my head and it terrified me. It absolutely caught me with so much panic. I remember screaming at her to leave the house because I was so concerned I was going to do something. And I kept asking her. So this is obviously now I know to be reassurance. And I kept asking her, are you sure I haven't done anything? Are you sure I haven't done anything? Are you sure I haven't done? I said, how do you know? How do you know? She said, Sean, you haven't done anything, but I couldn't trust myself. I felt as if I could not trust myself. So I screamed at her to leave. I I literally begged her to leave. I said, please just go, just go. I just want to be alone. I want to be alone. And I tried to go to sleep. And then the suicide thoughts popped into my head and images of murder, slashing, all sorts um, ran out of my head and so much more. So then what happened when I tried to sleep, as I said, I had the suicide images pop into my head and I was like, no, no, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. So I called the ambulance um, and they came to check for me. I went into the 
into A&E and I spoke to them, some of the mental health professionals. I said, no, I'm going to be okay. I just need psychodynamic therapy. I, I need therapy. So yeah. I opted for psychodynamic therapy. And if anyone knows psychodynamic therapy, it's probably one of the worst things sometimes when you can live with um, anxiety slash OCD. Yeah. Because yeah. they try to get to the root of the thoughts. Whereas when you live with OCD, you've got to learn to not pay the thoughts any attention and they say nothing Absolutely. about you. Yes. So yeah. then the penultimate, the, the final moment for me was when I was out with one of my friends, I had some more suicide images pop into my head. I had suicide words in my head. I had an image of me jumping off a bridge that popped into my head and it caught me with so much terror that I ran home. I pretty much ordered an Uber, super depressed. I said to my friend, I can't do this anymore. I called all my friends and told them I was depressed and no longer wanted to be alive. And my friends knew me typically as the guy that they came to for advice, the guy that they relied on, the strong person. So when they saw me like that, they didn't know what to do, to be very honest. And one of my friends, he just cried his eyes out. He said, I don't know what to do, man. I said, it's all right, man. I said, I just don't want to be here anymore. And for the next couple of days, I could barely sleep. The insomnia got me. I didn't want to do anything. Time felt like a burden. My existence just felt hard was the best way to put it. I wanted time to swallow me up. And then it was on Saturday, the 4th of June. I said, I can't do this anymore. So I went to go seek out help and I, via the internet via the algorithm i found this lady called emma garrick the anxiety whisperer and i begged her for a phone call and bear in mind this was a saturday so she wasn't working i said please i just need a phone call she picked up the phone and i just absolutely cried my eyes out so i said why am i having gay thoughts rape thoughts and suicide thoughts she said sean you have ocd i said how do you know she said i have ocd as well and i live with ocd and I was like, am I going to get better? I kept asking her, am I going to get better? Am I a bad person? What's wrong with me? She said, you're none of that. We're going to get you better. And we started therapy on the Monday that came up. And I've been in recovery ever since. She saved my life in so many ways. And I say this Gosh. over and over again, because it's the only way to explain yeah. what she actually did for me. And that was probably some of the biggest adversity I've ever faced mentally. I've, I Last year, I was diagnosed with OCD. I then tore my ACL, MCL meniscus and fractured my right leg. So I actually have to get surgery for that at some point. Um, I ended up in hospital for three days with pneumonia. So that was a whole nother journey within itself. My auntie died. My cousin was murdered. My half brother died. My stepdad is in a home with vascular dementia. So there were things that were just coming. They kept coming. They kept coming. They kept coming. And that's why I couldn't choose what happened to me, but I could choose the way I got up. But I was really lucky and privileged to have the therapist I did and yeah just to give people just to give your listeners again some context and some placement my mental health breakdown was pending for a very long time so I didn't realize how much I was actually struggling financially I couldn't do a lot of things in my life so when I came to her I said to my I said to her I don't have money I said please I just need help to get me back on my feet so to this day I still actually owe her two thousand pounds but she's super relaxed about it because she knows that it's going to come but I've been really rebuilding my life and it has been very difficult, especially with the cost of living crisis. So that's my story of adversity. That kindness of others. That's almost another episode in itself, isn't it? What a remarkable person. And absolutely, you know, we must make sure we give a shout out, perhaps even put that in the show notes as well. Um, There's so much there. Honestly, we could have so many episodes here, couldn't we? But for listeners, people that might be new, I have covered OCD in another episode in terms of paternal OCD, um, which is why I was really excited when, when you got in touch, because also there's so much more, this OCD is so much more complex than just one episode. Um, it's this 
for helping people understand that it can be about intrusive thoughts, but also intrusive images. And absolutely, I'm so glad you brought that in um, right at the beginning here, that actually there can be a gradual build up in terms of the wider impact on your mental health. We might not notice at the time we're not doing so well. And with something like OCD, you can get very focused on the symptoms of that, but perhaps not notice that it's causing something like depression, for example, it's impacting on your day to day functioning. Um, And just that judgment. I mean, I've been doing this job over 20 years. And seen so so many people with OCD and that's such a common factor that am I going to be judged for what my basically what my brain is sending me these thoughts and I'm actually really grateful that you can share your story because sexual intrusive thoughts are very common in OCD but we don't talk about it enough because there is that fear of judgment so you get that vicious cycle so I'm so super privileged that you've been able to come on and talk about that and just looking at you used that word triggers early as well so there's so much I want to come on there to kind of help our listeners understand because there may be somebody who's noticing things and not sure and after this podcast it might help them go actually do you know what I think that's me that you reaching out for help but looking for those is it all right to talk a little bit more about kind of triggers because I thought that was really interesting you brought that in right at the beginning um perhaps noticing certain situations things that perhaps aren't great for your mental health but also maybe relapse is that all right to bring in as well how we kind of manage once we've had treatment and signs to look out for absolutely so i'll start from back to front then i've definitely relapsed um sometimes with ocd in the sense of i there's been times when i've been obsessed with depression in the sense of i'm obsessed with the idea that i can become depressed yeah and i remember i I heard an ocd therapist kimberly quinlan who i was recently on that podcast and her name is the Your Anxiety Toolkit. And she was saying um, on one of her podcasts that often, because OCD, we become obsessed with the idea of depression, we end up acting depressed, which in turn makes us actually depressed. So yeah. I've had to it's always capture myself when... Yeah, yeah, I've had to capture myself when an intrusive thought can come in being like, you're depressed, or the word will pop in. And, and I've had to just remind myself, this is just OCD, and I've got to deal with the... <laughs> the discomfort the fact it's uncomfortable so that's one that's that's one thing and in terms of triggers i think my trigger was health anxiety and the health anxiety that i got was as a result of being lied to in a relationship where the girl actually gave me wow i was given chlamydia three times when i actually think about it so in my very first relationship um i was a virgin i didn't sleep with anyone else and the girl that I was with, she was a bit more experienced than me. And she was convinced I wasn't a virgin. She was 100% convinced. And she said one day we should go to the sexual health clinic. And in the sexual health clinic, she said apparently they said she had chlamydia. She said she didn't know where she got it from. It must have been from right. her ex. Yeah. But yeah. she was cheating. I, she was ultimately cheating. Then the next girl that I dated, she was. I found out she was sleeping with somebody else. And when I went to the toilet and it was burning to wheat it felt like glass yeah. like yeah. shards of glass were coming out of my penis it was honestly on fire it felt horrible and i remember i called her up and i said do you have something to tell me because you're the only one i'm sleeping with she's like no 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 i don't i said no 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 you need to tell me what's going on here yeah. and when she said to me i've got traces of chlamydia i was like why did you not tell me that she said oh apparently the doctor said there's nothing wrong with it I went to the doctor. The doctor said, there's no such thing as traces of chlamydia. You either have it or you don't. Yeah. He said, the girl lied to you. I was like, okay, cool. Then I, there was someone else that I was seeing uh, for, a, um, not for a very long time. And after we had, you know, done the adult stuff, quote unquote, I remember I, I said to her, oh, I'm clean, by the way. I said, oh, here's my test results just so you can see. Because I wouldn't engage irresponsibly, right? Yeah. And she yeah. was like, oh, she hasn't been tested. I was like, oh, okay. I said, if you could just get tested, that'll be fine. Um, so she got tested 
And what did it come back with again? Chlamydia. And I was just like, at this point, I was like, this because it, it just kept reinforcing my fear. It yeah. literally was a compulsion that was being proven to be true at the time. And that really traumatized me. Uh, and I think that really led on to other obsessions. So I still have OCD thoughts. I still have OCD dreams. I, but I've learned how to react very differently to it. Now I wake up and it yeah. actually just makes me laugh. I'm like, the brain creates fantastical stories. The brain is a really storytelling does. machine. It can tell me whatever it wants to. It doesn't mean that's what I am. And I think a lot of my OCD at the time was, I was terrified to speak about it because I'm a black guy. I'm quite tall. I'm six foot three. And I think I internalized the idea that if I felt like I was a danger to myself, I felt like I was a danger to the world. And ever so slightly, if we're going to have a very honest and open conversation about race, black men are the most highly desired on earth, statistically speaking, across all the races. But we're actually the most feared at the very same time. And I understand these nuances from my studies, psychology and sociology. And I think I ever so slightly internalize a lot of these attitudes towards myself. So my biggest trigger definitely was the health anxiety, which was caught as a result of chlamydia. And then I think other parts of my anxiety were brought about as a result of race and my lived experience. And brains are amazing at taking information. It's what they do to keep us safe, essentially, isn't it? But actually, sometimes it's that ability to go, thanks, but I've got this. But one thing I really would like to get across to people listening is that with OCD, it's not about getting rid of the thoughts. We can't get rid of thoughts. And, and once you're able, and it sounds absolutely bananas, doesn't it, to say, well, why would you want to go and see a therapist if you can't get rid, you know, the amount of people walk through my door, you need to get rid of this OCD or get rid of these thoughts. And we have to kind of have a conversation about how that works. That, you know, you might still be battling those thoughts, but it's how you respond, how you view them, and just the ability to question your brain at times. Because most of us very naturally would say, gosh, if my brain's saying this is a threat, it must be. We don't have the ability to go, hang on a minute, what is this? And as you say, I'm really glad you brought in humour there. I do a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is highly evidence-based for OCD as well. And that humour element, that ability to be able to go with some of my patients actually oh here you are morning OCD you know but actually you know what I've got this right now can really help separate you from the power you know that thought can literally kind of grab you on it by both shoulders and say pay attention to me you need to respond and OCD is about the response isn't it as well it's the intrusive thought and what your brain wants you to do to try and neutralize it and then that vicious vicious cycle so in terms of is it all right to ask is there anything that you find helpful to give you that separation from your thoughts to stop you responding to them with things like checking behaviors that we talked about before reassurance seeking so i used to do checking behaviors such as again and i think this was from growing up with my mum being quite a highly anxious individual after my yeah, dad's death yeah. i used to check the door was closed turn right. the cookers off check the fridge was closed but okay. i would do it several times because i didn't trust myself there were times i'd get into bed and i'd be like N- i don't think i've closed the door I'll go back downstairs and do it. If I close the door to leave to go somewhere, there were times I was late to places because I didn't trust that I had closed the door. And what I've used to manage has been sometimes just trusting the discomfort, understanding that I'm going to be uncomfortable, accepting that and practicing willful tolerance. And I learned a lot of that act, acceptance and commitment therapy, also with CBT, ERP. And what yeah. I've also done quite a lot is journal. I journal pretty much every day as much as I can. I'm trying to get into journaling in the morning now as well. But yeah. I journal mainly at night. Gratitude journal, which helps me to see my my world in an abundance mindset and not just a scarcity mindset. Because I think quite often living with OCD 
or any other mental illness that we, we can often give up on ourselves and it's usually when you give up on yourselves you really forget that there are a lot of things in life you can do in spite of rather than because you know rather than staying away and avoiding things and another thing i do is i exercise quite a lot so i still work out so that's helping me and funnily enough when sometimes when i work out i still get anxious because you know your endorphins and your hormones are running uh, but yeah. accepting that is a part of the process to in order sometimes to feel better you have to go through some hardship at times yeah. and that's adversity Pretty like what point. you and i speak about so yes. i would say that's also i'm working on healing my inner child and what i've been doing at the moment which i've really enjoyed when i was young was building lego just doing yeah. simple things like that and just it really is yeah training my focus allowing myself to have a distraction method so i would for your listeners i'd say journaling exercise um find something that makes your inner child happy it can be anything some some of my friends do coloring some of my friends play the piano whatever it might be find those things that make you happy but also understand that OCD is not going to go away. It ebbs and flows. It comes, it goes. There's some days it will be there. Some days it won't be there. Acceptance is so key. The more you try to fight it is the more you're teaching your brain essentially that it's something for you to worry about. And you and I both know that the brain is evolutionarily hardwired to find things wrong with the world. So you almost have to retrain your brain, otherwise known as neuroplasticity, um, so I'm also weaning myself of antidepressants, luckily enough, and I want to start microdosing on psilocybin because I was on a psilocybin trial with TEDx and with Imperial College London looking into right. psilocybin being um, a therapeutic, having therapeutic capabilities for OCD. But as a caveat, just so people can understand, there was a 2006 Harvard study that was done that showed that psilocybin has profound effects on OCD, but we need more and more research to prove it yeah. to be a viable treatment. So that's just a caveat for people. Well, that's the important thing, isn't it? What I really like about what we've covered so far is so eclectic in the different things, you know, the professional help that you've sought, but also things that you've done for yourself. And that's the brainchild behind this podcast that I want people to know that we have so much in us innately and through my life experiences to help us cope. Sometimes we might need additional support as well, but all of that being okay, that we don't want to just default to, other people need to support us through things. And when we think then you've been through so much, you continue to, that's a really important message with OCD that, as you say, some days it might be super strong, other days it might not be so strong. It's just what you've done with that. There's, I literally have this huge list of things that you did. We wanted to talk specifically, didn't we, just about male mental health. So kind mm -hmm. of, you know, looking at stigmas, but also the education system, how we're supporting young men particularly with mental health, with their well-being, but also maybe the, the things around that that might impact on mental health. And then what's led you to be able to work with others and share your story with others? So loads. If you could just, you know, pop that all in for me, that would be fantastic. Definitely. So what I learned to realise with a lot of my story, when I first ever shared my story, a lot of black people reached out to me telling me that they had OCD. So I realised yeah. there was, a, there was a, yeah. a need in the market for more black people to have a space in which we could talk about OCD. So I created yeah, a black absolutely. OCD recovery group, yeah. recovery WhatsApp group with 30 of us in it now. And I know to a lot of people that oh. doesn't sound like a lot, but that is huge for it the is. community. Absolutely. It's massive. Yeah. yeah. And so that's one thing I've done. Now, when it comes to male mental health, I'm probably sure you've noticed as well, but therapists don't understand male depression. A lot of people do not understand male depression. It's, it's something that yeah. And whilst anxiety and depression are two acceptable topics for us to speak about in society, 
male depression is not understood. And let me explain why. Yeah. Uh, with social political movements and the changing of ec- um, the economy and finances, men no longer know their place in the world due to the advent of feminism and women having a lot more autonomy and freedom to explore their destiny and to rightly so, you know, the, se- the, the pill brought about a sexual revolution so it delayed women having to have children. That's been great for women, but we've pushed the pendulum too far on the other side because we've raised women with the freedom to be anything that they want to be. But now we haven't taught men that they can truly be anything that they want to be. They're no longer pigeonholed by certain binaries that operate within society. Now, a lot of people may or may not agree with me, but there's a reason why suicide is the biggest killer for men under the age of 35. Yes. It's men no longer know their place in the world. And a lot of men, we're taught our value inherently comes from what we produce, what we do, what we do for others. Whereas women are born with inherent value. Your value is your fertility and essentially your looks. Now, before anybody has a quick, you know, argument for me, they say that, um, but what happens if she's not pretty? Or what happens if she's infertile? Yes, it's hard for those women too. But funnily enough, in the workplace, short men are actually the most disadvantaged. Short men are most less likely to get promotions. Short men are less likely to be considered in the dating market. They're the lowest on the sexual hierarchy and so much more. There's mm. a reason why we need to change the way that we see the dynamics between men and women. So most of the CEOs in the world are above six foot one. We understand that height is a really big indicator of respect and success and so much more. So even I've got a privilege of my height, but ultimately I believe with male mental health, we need to reimagine the lines of masculinity because masculinity in and of itself is not toxic. I believe that strong men provide and teach and allow the world to be a better place. Whereas I think weak men are the ones who want power trips. Weak men are the ones who want to take advantage out of people. Because I believe a strong man who is within his masculinity, and I know to some people that sounds wishy-washy and airy-fairy, but from the evidence, from what we see in society, strong men take care of the people around them. They love and they provide, but they also need the space to explore other types of masculinity, whether that's crying or the ability to share their anxieties and their fears. Yeah. And we don't have that in society. We truly do not. And I've noticed it within my everyday life and the men around me that one of my friends, he was training to be a dental nurse and he was like a dental assistant or something like that. And when he went to go to his girlfriend's house at the time, he's no longer with this girl. His The parents said to him, so you're not just going to be just a dental assistant or a dental nurse. You're going to be training to be a doctor or a consultant, right? He said he doesn't really know, he hasn't thought about it. But they look down on him because there's this idea that men have to constantly achieve and strive towards as much money as they possibly can. Because again, men are taught that our money is the biggest, it's it's the only resource we can really give to the world, but there's more inherently to us as men. So we need to understand that depression has a big effect because of the way we're engineering society. As I said, Whilst women have had the the pill, massive sexual health revolution, we've got labor-saving goods such as the washing machine, the dishwasher. All these different elements have removed the burden within the domestic sphere that women once were imprisoned to, and they now have the freedom to go and chase their careers and to explore their sexuality and to do so much more. But men no longer have that freedom. Once upon a time ago, one salary could take care of the family. One salary doesn't take care of the family anymore. So we need to teach men that there's a lot more to their existence than just what they provide. Yes. Yeah. How do we do that? 
What are your thoughts on it? This is such a tough question. And it's an answer that I probably don't even have enough real time to go into. But I think some of the best ways we can start is allowing men the space to actually be emotional and to not look down on them. And I've been guilty of this in the past. When my friends wanted to talk about emotions, I'm like, bro, I ain't got time for that, man. I don't want to hear it. Whereas now, because I was forced with my mental health breakdown, I was forced to look inside. The mental health breakdown was probably arguably one of the best things that ever happened to me. And it was still tough, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's to be desired in any way, shape or form. But through the adversity, we understand even in psychology, there's PTG, which is post-traumatic growth, where you grow through your trauma. You come out on the other side with new neural pathways. Trauma does traumatize you. I'm not here to glorify trauma in any way, shape or form. But trauma can help you be stronger on the other side. That's why there's a saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it does. You've just got to do a lot more hard work compared to somebody else. But I think we've also got to just give men space. And I used this example last night. I was on a podcast with a really profound uh, boxing coach and him and I were talking about this. And I said, we have loose women. We have all these chat shows for women where women are allowed the freedom to talk about how they feel. They can complain, they can rant, they can gossip. And we accept that to be a feminine thing. And it's a feminine privilege in many ways. But imagine a chat show where men just talk about how they feel. Now, so a lot of women uh, or and some uh, men, we associate that with Andrew Tate and the new phenomenon that he's brought about. And whether or not you believe Andrew Tate is a good person or a bad person, that's up to you to decide. I don't want to inject any sort of opinions. I try to be as fair and even on all sides of the spectrum. But imagine a show where we can have men just talk about how they feel and what's wrong with the world. And a young boy that goes to school can be like to his friendship group, guys, I saw this chat show, man. Can can we talk about stuff? And I think that is a trailblazing trailblazing start because we know that women are the biggest consumers within the marketplace. That's why a lot of marketing companies sell to women because women buy men do not buy and i believe if we need to get men to consume in society more we have to give them things that encourages them to consume more and i believe the biggest consumption that we need now is empathy more feminine energy in the world but also spaces where men are allowed to just express how they actually feel and not feel that that's shameful you know or not or supporting people with you know good old validation which you'll be aware of in some of your training you're doing at the moment but you know that it's okay to share that there's no judgment no shame but also how if we do begin to share how we can support other people to validate us rather than to minimize and um, for listeners what I mean by that is that sometimes somebody might share something emotional what they're going through but you might be met with oh that's nothing to worry about or oh we don't need to talk about that today or you know come on pull your socks up you'll be fine and and that can be very so it's the starting the conversation but teaching others how to hold it and carry it on as well absolutely so I'm training to be a life coach um, right now and it's been such an eventful journey because I realized I'm I'm a rescuer. I'm a fixer. I like to fix people, but me trying to fix people is me avoiding fixing myself. It's actually one of the biggest avoidance. And from having certain types of insight and being in certain experiences and being around certain people, it's refined my self-awareness skills. And I believe a lot of people listen to um, to reply, not listen to understand. And one of the things that we incorporate within life coaching is something called active listening, where you truly sit down, you hear what the person has to say, 
and you really try to have no yeah. judgment about it. And that's hard. I, I'm still guilty of it. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm training. So, and it's constant practice, self-development and, you know, improvement. It's constant practice. So active listen, I think is really important. But one thing I've also learned within my own friendship circles has been when my friends would come to me, I would immediately want to be solutions orientated. I think it's a typical guy thing. I think men, we don't want to hear all the complaining because we've been raised to not complain. We've been raised to get on with it. So when my friends would come to yeah. me, I'd be so solutions orientated that I didn't actually hear them out and let them feel heard. So now what I've had to ask is, do you want me to listen or would you like advice? So yes. I put the ball yes. back into their court. I yep. empower them. I allow them to have to, de- to decide ultimately what they actually want. And I found that's been really helpful because it sets a precedent for them, but it also sets the tone for me and what I need to do. Yeah. I, in, I think another way we can really get people to hold space is meet the person that you want to listen to in the spaces that they are most comfortable with. And yes. what I mean when I say this is, Often the way we communicate love is the way we want to be loved, not how the other person wants to be loved. And we get annoyed when they don't give us the love that we want, but they're trying to love us in the best ways that they can. And I remember I I saw a beautiful saying that said, just because he doesn't love you the way he wants, doesn't mean he doesn't love you with everything he can. And I think we can incorporate that into every part of our lives. I really like that. You know, my my mom's not very physically affectionate at all, but I know she loves me. She loved me through acts of service but I needed physical touch. So in a lot of my relationships, I'm very physically affectionate, but I am also acts of service that I got from my mom. So it's about learning about yourself. And I believe ultimately when you learn about yourself, you can therefore love and give to other people better. Yeah. Taking that time, you're having a little bit of what we call theory of mind that my perspective or my experience is not always going to be a match or what other people are experiencing as well so how have you brought such a wealth so there's a lived experience but obviously you know how you've brought that in terms of what you want to do with that creating change in the world tell us just a little bit about how you try and get your message out there the work that you do because you do so much <laughs> don't you how do you um, try and take all of this knowledge and continue to further other people's lives and to educate them so, so during my recovery, when I was still in touch with my therapist, I was having the fears, I was schizophrenic, BPD, bipolar, I was self-diagnosing myself as you usually do with an anxiety disorder, being yeah. OCD. Yeah. And I just woke up one day, Tara, and I just went, fuck it, I'm going to change the world. Something yeah. in my brain like said, that. I'm going to go and change the world. I went downstairs, I opened up my Google document, my laptop, sorry, and I opened up Google Doc and I just started writing my story. And I pitched it to everybody I knew. So if anybody knows me, they know me personally. I'm relentless. I will absolutely legally harass people as much as I can. I'll email, I'll find their LinkedIn, I'll find their Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I will do several touch points because that's I've had. That's what I've had to do, especially from where I've come from. I'm an inner city London boy. I haven't had opportunities handed to me. I've had to go and get it. I've had to have a dogged mentality. So when I started writing my story and people responded to me, I realized there was a need in the market for it. And I just put myself into that space and I said, I'm in pain and I still suffer on some days, right? But I went from suffering to thriving with OCD and that's my mentality. And I wanted the people around me to know that you cannot give up on your life. I wanted my pain to have some sort of purpose and to have some sort of meaning. And that's exactly what I have tried to do. And 
I'm a, I'm a massive advocate of reading. I'm always trying to read because I realized the more I read, the more I realized I never actually knew at all. So it was yeah. a massively humbling yeah. experience. And I think probably the biggest indicator of my current success has been a dogged mentality, providing for people what I think they really need, but also what I needed at the time as well and listening to people just giving people a phone call when they need a phone call. I've had people message me speaking about psychotic episodes, insomnia, OCD, and so much more. And I obviously let people know I'm not a trained therapist. I'm going to give them as advice as best as I can, but they still yeah. need to go to yeah. a professional. But just telling people they're not alone has been massive for me. It's been a massive driving force into doing what I do. But ultimately one of my biggest goals is to leave the world in a better place and I found it and to have a meaningful impact and legacy and from modeling I learned so much I went into modeling a little boy and I came out of it a scarred man ultimately and I think I was actually on the fringe of an eating disorder undiagnosed obviously caveat again because I starved myself I would drain my body with diuretics every day. I used to drink up to four liters on mornings before, like by the time I woke up, I wouldn't eat enough calories. I did some absolutely obscene things to maintain a gaunt cheekbone look. And I was positively yeah. affirmed yeah. and validated from the world around me. So I take the experiences that I've learned and I try to give it to other people in the sense that obviously people are still going to have to learn their own lesson. I'm not here to stop people, but I want people to have somebody they can look up to and just realize wow they're open with their journey and I'm really not alone because when I was alone with OCD I thought I was the only guy in the world that had the thoughts I had it's one of those illnesses where you feel like you are absolutely crazy I remember I begged to be put onto a mental ward I begged to be sectioned because I said there's something wrong with me and I can't put into words but I wanted to be for other people what I didn't have at the time. I didn't see anybody that looked like me. I didn't see any men speaking about it. And I just wanted to be the bridge to other worlds. I wanted to connect people together. And I wanted to, most importantly, create meaningful connections as well. So a lot of that is my reasons as to why I do what I do and how I do what I do. So obviously, I've got the TEDx talk coming with Imperial College London, which is really exciting. Yes, I, you know. I'm working on a business now for public speaking and mental health consultancy, advocacy, and I'm still doing my freelance journalism. So I'm trying to use the platform I was able to build as a result of modeling and so much more, taking that cultural social capital and using it into something that ultimately will leave the world in a better place than I found it. Because I think with a lot of the influence I've got, and I understand I have great influence, I want to be responsible and accountable for it. I don't want to just add to another media machine or another influence in marketing machine. Obviously, I have to have a balance between the two. And sometimes you've got to marry business and morals, which some people think is quite hard. But I just want people to know they're not alone. And just using all of the power and the experience I've got to push forward the agenda that we are not alone with our mental health struggles. That's the thing that struck me now then. So not just your ability to now share your knowledge and your experience with people, but actually the thing that's really come out of today for me is just how much you do to address kind of loneliness and isolation as a result of mental health issues or other issues that people, other adverse situations people are going through. I love the fact, you know, advocacy, people don't talk about that enough. I could almost do with a separate episode on advocacy, Um, but just people not, you know, you said at the beginning, there's fear, there's judgment. Uh, this is the, I'm the only one going through this. And as, as well, when you talked about the type of intrusive thoughts that you've experienced, when there are intrusive thoughts, such as sexualized ones, that 
actually some people that you know that adds to the shame doesn't it so how many people might then feel they can't speak out and I know this is all right to say but many of my patients said it's much you know it's easier to speak out if you hand washing is your compulsive behavior but if your intrusive thoughts are around something where you feel there may be judgment or shame you're less likely to speak out so if people need to find you where can they because they're going to want to hear more where do you hang out online and social media we'll put all of this in the show notes as well yeah you can find me on all social media at the sean flores so t-h-e-s-h-a-u-n-f-l-o-e-o-r-e-s so yeah to sean flores so i often say to people that you're right there are acceptable forms of ocd there's media played narratives of ocd that we understand through obsessive compulsive cleaners in 2013 which was first aired on channel four and that's a lot of our stagnant views on what ocd actually is but ocd is a generally debilitating and quite a a mental illness that has taken a lot of lives from people because they're so ashamed and I often say to people, Tara, if you want to put anybody in contact with me and send them my details, go ahead. I'm more than happy. My DMs are open and I'm more than happy to, and willing to speak to any, absolutely everybody because I know what it was to be at my worst and I don't want other people to feel like they're absolutely alone. One of my friends has pedophilia OCD and he's terrified yeah. to speak about it yeah. again because it's such a taboo topic. And some pieces I'm working on now, funnily enough, is how cancel culture cancels certain mental health conversations. And that's some exciting work I'm actually doing on that as well. Because oh, I, I think we live in a, a very much a bullying culture right now yeah. where yeah, we have to have absolutely. the right thoughts, we have to have yep. the right editing. And a lot of us are thought policing and that's not how the brain works. So I'm working on a lot of intersectional ideas that really have pervasive influence on the way we actually discuss mental health because imagine if somebody came to you and said obviously you're educated enough tara but if someone wasn't educated and said look i'm convinced i'm a pedophile someone might go stay away from me man you need help i'm not realizing the fact that they're worried is typically an indicator of anxiety it's typically tells you something so I think we need to remove a lot of the shame and the stigma, the guilt and embarrassment, which are some of the three. It's a deadly trio that I've actually felt as well. And I think from that point in, then people will be able to speak up. As I said, if there's anybody listening to this, please feel free to reach out. Tara, any one of your patients who have, you know, have OCD and they need somebody to look up to or to speak to, I'm here. You can give them my details and please do not feel afraid to reach out because you are not alone. I thought I was alone and definitely I'm, I I was not alone. So yeah. And I'm actually even writing right now, some of my own hypothesis on certain behaviors and illnesses. So I call it the deadly trio, which is shame, embarrassment, and guilt. So a lot of the work I'm working on now is hopefully going to put, it's going to intellectualize and reframe the way that we see mental health and the conversations that we're having. So you've given me so much, but I always ask every guest, if there's one little adversity takeaway that you can leave us with, one little nugget, what might that be? That's a really good question. It's my kind of signature move at the end. So OCD was the worst thing to ever happen to me. I've been determined to be the worst thing to ever happen to OCD. But I want people to also know there's one nugget. You're not forced to be an activist or an advocate. Your everyday existence, your existence is mere resistance quite often. And it's not a saying that I've always liked, but it's a saying that I really sit home with that you don't have to be anything amazing and special. Your existence is special and amazing enough as it is. And your mental health struggles do not make you any less. They do not make you any valid. You are not alone. And I cannot tell people that enough. 
when I was really badly suicidal and I was going to allow temporary feelings to make permanent decisions and I'm thankful for life. I'm thankful. I made decisions to still stay in this world. I just want people to know that they can still live with OCD and they can still live with mental illnesses. Absolutely, It's hard, but it is not impossible. This is a story of overcoming adversity from surviving to thriving. And that's something I really want people to understand. If you can reframe your mind and reframe the way you think. But also, as I said, accept that you're still going to have some tough times. You cannot expect sunshine without a little rain sometimes, but the sunshine, we, as humans, we operate within myriads of different emotions, right? We operate in duality, knowing there's going to be good, bad, happy, sad, depressed, overexcited, you know, knowing that we operate within those places, because I think quite often in society, we're taught that, we almost need to have this permanent state of being. And that's just not humans. We're not robots. We have many different synapses firing in our brain. So just knowing that you've made it through your hardest days and you can make them through again. Absolutely. I could talk to you all day, Sean. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'll definitely have to have you back again because I would really like at some point to tackle that tricky subject of the kind of as you say, the different side of OCD in terms of acceptability. And I think that's a good thing to tackle. And I think that would help many people. Thank you so much, Sean, for taking the time and for bearing with the joy that is technicals. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad I finally managed to get you recorded and the, the, the platform playing ball with this. So thank you so much. Um, it's been your next TEDx talk is out. We'll make sure we can add that into the show notes as well because they're live. You can edit them so people know where you are and where to Definitely. find you. So thank you so much. I'm humbled. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really hope this helps people as best as it can. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrarillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast, helping you step at a time.